Welcome to Change Making Connections, the podcast where transformative talks on social justice, leadership, and beyond become more than just words. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I invite a global change leader to talk with me about the strategies and tactics that they use to cultivate deep transformation in their lives, their communities, and their organizations. Tune in to Change Making Connections for your monthly dose of inspiration and insight. Let's create a ripple of change together. Hello, and welcome to Change Making Connections, the show where we talk with change leaders about how to support deep transformation in our lives, communities, and organizations. I'm your host, Beth Barilla. Each month, I talk with change makers about the joys, challenges, strategies, and possibilities in working for social justice in a variety of contexts. Today, I am so excited to talk with Machine Patricia Akita, who is an internationally known secular mindfulness and Buddhist teacher working primarily with justice activists and Black, Indigenous, and people of color meditation practitioners. A core teacher at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, California, she is an author whose writing has been published in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and various anthologies. She's a founding and guiding teacher at EBMC's Practice in Transformative Action, a year-long program that has produced 10 cohorts of graduates, providing secular mindfulness training for justice activists and change agents. Mushim was selected by Lions Roar Buddhist Media Magazine as one of the 26 great Buddhist teachers in the January 2022 issue and is a featured contributor to the Shift Network Summer 2023 Mystics Summit Online. You can learn more about her work at uh, mushimakita.com and we'll put that link in the show notes. Mushim, I'm so excited to be with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much, Beth. Totally. I always enjoy connecting with you and your insights and your um your presence in the world. So before we started recording, we were just catching up. And of course, two minutes in, we were already in deep conversation. So perhaps we can um, circle around to one of the central questions of this podcast, which is, how do we make change towards justice? And I'm curious, as a spiritual leader in the work and the presence you have in the world, how would you answer that question? How do we make change towards justice? Thank you, Beth. So how do we make change towards justice? I am a Buddhist, a practicing Buddhist, and my entry into Buddhist practice was in 1982 through the doorway of Korean Zen Buddhism. So Zen Buddhism in particular, and a feature of some Zen practice and methodology, spiritual methodology, we might say, are the use of meditation questions, sometimes called koans, K-O-A-N-S, which are questions that we can't answer through the use of our normal discursive patterns of thinking. Because number one, we there are things we don't know that we don't know, and there are things we think we know that we're may be mistaken or incomplete about. And that process helps to reveal that. So how do we make change towards justice can be considered to be a koan for our times. And as we use our mindfulness practices of meditation, of contemplation, somatic practices, whatever else is that helps us to, the phrase often used is drop down 
to drop down into the fullness of our consciousness. So it's not necessarily even dropping down below our everyday awareness and concerns. I would say it's to include all of that and so much of what is that iceberg that's underneath our, oh, I've got to pay taxes and gee, I've just run out of milk and taking care of the kids, getting the car fixed, all of which is necessary to function. How can I get a car and how can I get milk? There are many people who are uh, financially really struggling. So all of that awareness to bring that together and then to say, how do we work towards justice? And as I was contemplating this question, Beth, I thought a good launching pad might be a wonderful quote from my dear friend, Baba Ibrahim Farajaje, who was formerly provost of the Star King School for the Ministry in Berkeley, which is adjacent to Oakland, California, where I live. He died in February of 2016, and he was a radically transgressive, Black, queer, Sufi, imam, university professor, genius kind of visionary person. Very wonderful. And this is what he had to say, which has been a guiding what the uh, great spiritual teacher Thich Nhat Hanh might say, a guiding riverbank for me in my own thinking and in my own work. How do we make change towards justice? So Baba Ibrahim, Ibrahim said this, radically subversive religious leaders are willing to challenge paradigms, challenge structures of oppression, to encourage people to dream into reality new worlds. They put their bodies where their discourse is. And by so doing, they tap into the energy in the communities that's already moving. So what I mean is those who are really willing to build communities of resilience, of sustainability, that are counter-oppressive, and who engage in the work of connecting the dots constantly. End of quote. Wow. Just letting that ripple through me. How does that act as a riverbank for your life and work? I keep the quote taped to the door of my little pantry in my kitchen here. And this is a this is a very small apartment, rent controlled. The kitchen is used as a kitchen, obviously, and it's got this very narrow kind of strip of floor. And that's really the only space here that's open enough where I can do yoga. And I've been taking yoga lessons from my very wonderful teacher for many years. And so when he went online at the start of the pandemic, I said, well, if that's the only place, then that's the only place. So I've done hundreds and hundreds of yoga lessons sitting or lying on this yoga mat along the length of the kitchen with my laptop computer at the end. And to my right, there's this image of Baba Ibrahim Farajaje and this quote, and I look at it all the time. Therefore, in answer to your question, it's a daily presence in my life. 
It's something that resonates with me and that keeps opening up for me. In particular, two things. Baba Ibrahim said for that radically subversive religious leaders tap into the energy in the communities that's already moving. That really struck me. I got this image of a wave and like how to work with the wave. Yes, I think it's, um, it could be said it, to be really Taoist in many ways. And before that, he says that uh, as religious leaders, we put our bodies where our discourse is. In other words, it's easy to talk about all kinds of things, justice and so forth. What are we doing with our bodies? Where are we showing up? How are we modeling how to be physically? Are we demonstrating whether we're at ease with how we look and appear and present physically? I mean, that's a really big thing for any people, I would say, who fall into the target group of an oppressed minority in the United States because of, of the lack of images or the negative images that are constantly being reflected to us. So many people who you and I would look at and you'd think, oh, you gorgeous thing. And they're in pretty good health. And, you know, if you talk to them, if one talks to them, well, you know, I don't really like the way I look. I'm trying to, for large people, they might say, I constantly try to make myself smaller so I don't look threatening when I appear in a meeting. And uh, so how can we actually physically demonstrate that, okay, I may be what's considered to be overweight. I'm this, I'm not that. My hair is this way or that way. And you know what? That's cool. <laughs> Just I'm fine. I'm fine. An issue. And not only that, I'm happy to uh, be who I am. I'm I'm in my body, and I'm not the most attractive person around, and I'm not the ugliest person around and who sets those standards anyway. So, hey, let's just be here and enjoy each other and do the work we're going to do instead of always be shrinking and trying to show this side of our face or whatever with our eyes, just put, be able to put that aside. So we're putting our bodies where our discourse is. And by so doing, Baba Ibrahim says, we tap into the energy in the communities that's already moving. And I think for me, Beth, that that is key because leadership can be isolating and then real distortions set in. We've seen that in religious communities. The leader is regarded as this great enlightened being and is so revered and, oh, you're so famous. You must live in a totally different realm than poor little me. And then it goes to their head and then they're only surrounded by their closest disciples who are constantly magnifying their greatness to them. And that's when abuses occur, usually sex, money, or some combination thereof. So for leaders to say, uh, no, I'm not leading in the sense of I'm an isolated in individual and people are following me like a group of ducks. You know, they're just quacking along and I'm saying, oh. Let's scrap that model and say that spiritual leadership 
radically subversive spiritual leadership is checking in with the community in relationship with the community at multiple levels. Sometimes one is a leader, sometimes someone, one is a follower. I've always said, if you're having trouble with your new phone, the expert is going to be the teenager that's nearest to you. You just hand it to them and say, how do I do this? And they'll just press a few buttons and hand it back. We're sometimes leading, sometimes we're following. Those multiple relationships are being richly explored. And then energy in the communities is moving already. Sometimes we may be at the head of some initiative or movement or project. And sometimes we may be flying along like geese in the wake of some other leader, right? That geese flying geese model. So we tapping into the energy that's already moving and that is going to decrease and change the language of we're fighting for justice. We're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting for this, we're fighting for that. If we're always fighting, we're always in warrior mode and usually we're going to burn out. And in the past, like say more than 10 years ago, that was a lot of the language that I saw in social justice work was the warrior language and the model also of the martyr for the people. Of course, you're not going to spend time uh, playing with your children or going to the dentist or something like that, or maybe to the dentist, but very briefly, you're not going to spend time going on vacation because the world is in flames. And how would you, you have to keep fighting. You're a firefighter who's always at the front of the battle with the inferno. And then we saw people burning out and dying and their relationships going to shreds, organizations exploding. And in the United States, what I saw in social justice movements was the arising of two words, which I consider to be the best words ever. And those two words, sustainability and capacity as goals. We want to be sustainable, meaning also joyful and happy, healthy, financially sound. And in order to be sustainable, we need to respect that we have limited capacity. Like, yes, you all have wonderful ideas and it would be great if someone did them. We don't have capacity and that's okay. And so going back to here, tapping into the energy that's already moving, different groups, different individuals have different capacities at different times. And if we're not isolated, we're able to flow with that in an organic way through interrelationship. And that leads him then to say in this quote that people need to be willing to build communities of resilience, of sustainability, he uses that word, that are counter-oppressive, that are liberatory, and that involves a lot of inner work. That's not, again, out there say, you people are oppressing us and fight, fight, fight. It also means we need to look within and examine what we call internalized oppression. How, in other words, how are we unconsciously replicating the very behaviors of oppression that we claim 
to be fighting and trying to get rid of. A good example is I'm a very devoted parent. I live here with my adult child. It's my only child. And despite my very best efforts to be a conscious mother and a conscious parent, I did find myself occasionally just screaming something in frustration. And I thought, where the heck did that come from? One example being, I'll give you something to cry about. That did come out of my mouth once. And you know what? I can't even blame my Mm. parents because I don't even remember my parents saying that to me. (laughs) That came out of like mainstream, quit sniveling. Yeah, totally. Complaining, whiny kid. You know, if you don't stop, I will punish you. I'll give you something that you'll really cry about. And as soon as I said that, I thought, okay, got some inner work to do. So to look at look at all of that in an organizational level, are we doing everything we can so that the employees have equitable pay, benefits, time to rest, and do personal business? How are we interacting with one another, which is always a work in, in progress? And to finish the quote, then Baba Ibrahim says, to engage in the work of connecting the dots constantly. And in working in leadership towards justice, a lot of what I feel that I do is networking and connecting people whom I've met and good people to one another in ways that once the introduction is made, they'll either do something together or they won't. It could be quick. It could be it could be never and then and I step out of the way I've I've done my job I've I've been a connector I've been a conduit and again that's not exactly the idea of a leader that many people might have in again in terms of this isolated individual who has the wisdom who's able to shout the inspiring phrases in a speech and who's always depicted in media by themselves. This latter image of connecting the dots constantly is you're more like a kind of a cell in an organism, (laughs) which isn't very sexy. You know, it's like, okay, I'm a cell in this heart that by some miracle is beating and circulating blood to every part of the body, including the brain. And wow, isn't it great to be a heart cell? <laughs> yeah, that image makes me think of the um, the web of both relations and roles that the heart needs all of us. And you were talking earlier about, or all those cells, you were talking earlier about the teenager who could help with a phone, right? And that knowledge not necessarily being less important than whoever's considered the hey, if your phone leader or whatever. Work. And that and it's right? Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> totally. And that it's dynamic. Uh, that it's uh, fluid. You mentioned the word flow, uh, that energy that's already moving, and that people, especially uh, like that teenager, if that teenager's knowledge is valued, is also going to grow up believing they have something to offer the community, believing that they're 
their knowledge, their insight, their expertise is valued in some way, which might be different if there was this message that the only one who really, your job is a follower, right? The only one who really matters is the person who from a high somewhere, some hierarchy sends down the message. That then empowers the community to shape the wave in, in whatever direction they need. And, you know, in the feminist work that I've learned and taught over the years, there was always this recognition, or I learned early on that you don't always know what the community needs, but they do because, I mean, whoever they are, like we live complex lives and we're in relation with each other. And I might know what I need, but I don't necessarily know what you need or my neighbor needs. And so which direction it needs to go needs to be a collective creation, co-creation, it seems to me, especially in this moment that we are in. Absolutely. And once again, I feel that's a different paradigm than the idea of the leader who's an expert and who come, you we bring in this expert who's going to fix us. An example would be that I was very involved with the Oakland Public Unified uh, Public School District here in California, which is notoriously large. The school population is incredibly diverse ethnically and for that reason, it has attracted a lot of really good teachers who want to teach in such a diverse setting and at the same time, very resource poor and basically a lot of corruption in the, the district mechanism for many, many years, which led the district to go bankrupt some time ago and have to, I know, no, I'm talking serious corruption, dysfunction. and. So within uh, that system, I was a very involved parent in my child's public schools and would come and volunteer and help with tutoring. Or if the teacher said, I need help with this or that, I'd just do whatever was needed. That's part of my religious training, actually, as a Buddhist. You don't come and say, I want to help, but I'm only going to do these things. If the help is emptying the trash, you just empty the trash and don't make a big deal of it. And that helps everything run more smoothly. And so in this little school, they started a diversity initiative to talk about race and racism. And being a multicultural society in, in, in a microcosm within the school and needed more adult volunteers to come in and help lead parent and children groups. And for the children groups, I'm a socially engaged Buddhist, and there was a person I didn't know very well who wanted to generously donate their time and come into the school. And I said, cool. And this person came in and said to the children, just lecturing, said, I'm going to tell you what the problem is about why you are oppressed as children. And that is ageism. As children, no one takes you seriously. No one listens to you. No one empowers you. And so I'm here to tell you how this works. And these were not stupid kids. You know, they were raised in Oakland. We're Black Panthers. That's part of our cultural heritage. And they just looked at her. And then they came out to me on the playground and said, we don't like her. <laughs> they said, they knew. I'm very, I'm very sorry. 
I understand completely what you're saying. She was enacting the oppression that she came to liberate you from by lecturing you about how to end your freaking oppression as children. (laughs) We really want to watch out for that, Beth. And again, be going to the community. Say the community is a group of second graders and say, saying, okay, kids, um, I was asked to come in here to talk about, you know, racism. What's your understanding of that word? And what have you experienced? And then start from there. Find, find out where they are and say, do you want to talk about this? Is, and if they all say no, then I would say, then we're not going to force this. However, if they would say, oh, yes, this has been my experience, and they all start talking to one another, then I become a facilitator, basically. And that's how we connect the dots, by by finding out what it is that communities want and need. We can't give them everything for lack of resources or even lack of interest. If the kids wanted to talk about said, we don't want to talk about racism. We want to talk about Pokemon cards. I would say, bless you and go talk to your teacher and I'm going to go home. That's, that's uh-huh. not what I'm here for. And, uh, uh-huh. and that's okay. That's okay. So that really resonates with me. And I'm curious what that, how we would approach that in such a polarized world that we're in right now, where some people really do want to talk about oppression and how to end it and how to work towards liberation from their own lived experience. And some people are very much like, doesn't affect me, don't care, this is how it needs to be. How would we approach that? What that that's a that's a challenge, at least for me. I completely agree with you. I'm alarmed by the huge degree of polarization that I now see in the United States speaking as a United Statesian, and the possibilities I see, Beth, are to gather together in community, basically in town hall-like settings, in person. Of course, these days it can be chat forums, whatever. There could be a variety of modes. Basically, town hall-type forums on issues that affect everyone, and that will be issues probably like schools and public schooling, safety, access to medical needs, healthy groceries, conditions of of roads. Like in Oakland, I don't know what happened to the budget, but over the pandemic in particular, there are these just giant potholes that would appear in frequently traveled roads, large and streets, large and small. And one day my son and I were out and we hit this gigantic pothole and then a series of other ones in this little hatchback car that I have. And the car was jumping up and down. I do have four wheel drive. And my kid who grew up in Oakland just said humorously, it's kind of like riding in the oak back. (laughs) It's an adventure. So those things are going to be of interest. It doesn't matter whether you're of one political party or another. If just to get to downtown Oakland and back, we're having to swerve around giant holes in the street and cracks and all of that. 
signage that doesn't function, that's of public interest. The schools are of public interest. Health is of public interest. And then to gather together in facilitated settings where containers are created. You can never have a perfectly safe container. However, where strong standards are set for civil discourse, and we have modeling of what that looks like. And as community members, what are some of the skills, capacities, practices we could develop to help be present with one another while trying to bridge some of those divides in a way that doesn't cause more harm? Like, I'm wondering if we're in those town hall meetings and we do have skilled facilitators and all of that, how might we practice showing up with one another? What are some ways we could show up together that would allow us to create some bridges? I've given that a great deal of thought. And here is, here is my answer. Uh, particularly as a Buddhist practitioner, there's a lot of emphasis in my tradition on being open to paradigm shifts. And one of the first sentences I was taught by my original Zen teacher was to say, I don't know. If in fact, I don't know. And not as, oh, I'm ashamed I don't know, or I should know. It's a statement of fact. I don't know about everything. That's ridiculous. And it's also not complacency. And I would like to learn. It's a lifelong learning commitment. And I think in order to make this shift, we need for people to model and to state outright that what we'd like to see is a shift into curiosity. And if we're going to get hardcore, I wouldn't say this to everyone. However, as far as I can see, it's true. Say we are fighting and fighting a war with an implacable enemy. Is it to our strategic advantage to find out more about that enemy? Or to say, F you, I don't want to know anything about you because you suck. Even strategically and cold-bloodedly. It is to our advantage as human beings to find out more about our neighbors, those we like, and those we do not like. It is to our advantage. And the basic fallacy that people fall into is, well, if, I, if I'm curious and I ask more about some repugnant politician or neighbor, that seems to mean that I'm condoning what they're doing. It doesn't at all. One is simply asking questions and gathering information. It doesn't mean we're going to vote like them. However, we might gain more information that surprisingly might shift us in certain directions that we had not anticipated. And that would be, that's what I'm recommending is that we try to find ways to shift from at the start of the pandemic, I read some neuroscience research that said that, I don't know if it's true or not, in my observation it is, it said that the most viral emotions are outrage and disgust. 
So not necessarily full-blown hatred. Like, I hate Jews, let's, etc. But it is outrageous that so-and-so said this and did this. I am disgusted by their position on abortion. And that actually those emotions go viral and other human beings start to just resonate with them really, really, really quickly. And then we're seeing what we're seeing happening through social media in terms of, and other ways in terms of both disinformation, in other words, calculated lies and misinformation, which I've seen defined as communities of people trying to share information with one another that will help one another that in fact are non-truths. Like at the start of the COVID pandemic, there was a recording that went around that a friend sent to me that said, in order not to contract uh, uh, COVID or not to get sick, as soon as you think you're exposed, gargle with warm water for 49 seconds and do this, do that. It was based in nothing. It was attributed to no one. And yet, well-meaning people were like, I've got to send this to everyone in my family. I've got to everyone in my support group. We need to save ourselves. So instead, thinking, okay, this situation is really, really frightening. Now I'm going to shift into curiosity and fact-finding and information-gathering mode, acknowledging I won't be able to, to find everything. The sources may be unreliable or this may be incomplete and everything may change as the situation unfolds. Nevertheless, I'm going to do my best right now to ground myself, say, get a grip. And now I'm going to go on a fact-finding mission. And that will require the ability. We were talking about this before we began recording, Beth. And you were saying uh, in how I heard you is we need to develop this capacity to hold many, many truths and contradictions Mm -hmm. and unknowns Mm -hmm. that is difficult for human being (laughs) yes yes it is and in some ways i think that's why and this is not scientifically based at all this is just my gut interpretation i think that's why disgust and outrage is so attractive because there's a lot of complexity underneath that that's riskier to explore i also was thinking as you were talking that In some of my experience, which is certainly not reflective of everybody's experience in the world, I've seen polarized people holding polarized positions cross, be able to um, close those gaps through relationship, not through ideology, not through abstract politics. Um, It's easier to position yourself in abstract politics. It's harder when you're like, but this is how it affects me, Beth, or you, Mushim, or someone else that we are in relationship with. And that's where I think some of that capacity building can, then that kind of opens some of the gap between, well, here's the truth that I used to think, and then here's another truth that doesn't align with that. And how do I make sense of that or learn to hold both of those together? And not just intellectually, but in my heart, in my spirit, in my energy, in my relations, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about relationship, essentially, and Mm. and backing off Mm. from abstract truths and saying, this is undeniably true. 
being able to back off from it and open ourselves to different perspectives, different experiences. This is part of diversity is different people really do have different experiences. And if you think about it, that's completely normal. Why would we expect everyone to have the same experiences across many lines of differences and culture and age and gender identity and all of the dimensions of of diversity? The issue with that is it makes the reality that we're holding larger and more complex, more puzzling, more contradictory, and it can be difficult to be able to hold all of that when so much in many human beings, myself included, yearn for certainties. This is known as the absolute good. I heard a quote the other day that I've been mulling over, and I haven't had time to Google it to try to find the attribution. So my apologies. And I thought, oh, for me, that is so true. And it said, the opposite of faith is certainty. So whenever, as a mindfulness also practitioner, I can catch, I can't always do it, but if I can catch my brain thinking, it is certain that, it's Uh absolutely undisputable that, I try to have another part of my brain that says, well, just wait a minute, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, today we're in August of the year 2023, In so much of the news I'm seeing, Beth, there is so much discussion, excitement, fear, joy over the possibilities of AI, artificial intelligence, in the recent breakthrough, which in which is called the LLMs, the Large Language Model Computing Abilities. And it's creating a sea change across the nation, possibly around the world, but I'll just talk about the United States for educators, because now we're going to have students who all have access to these chat GPTs, AI, which a scientist I know says is better called machine learning, are going to have access to machine learning in which you'll be able to say, okay, chatbot, uh, can you please write me um, a 300-word homework assignment essay on such and such a topic? And it's pretty good, and you turn it in, and what's a teacher supposed to do? In fact, you may have learned nothing whatsoever. Yeah, we are talking about that in higher ed. I'm sure a lot of educators are. Yep. And and all levels of education. Yep. There's a lot of fear that um, the that this this advance, which is major, will result in computers becoming sentient and that old science fiction thing, and then the robots kill off the humans because we will be oppressing and controlling them. That's been an eternal theme. There's a lot of that going on, and then. Also, I'm seeing I give a monthly donation to Doctors Without Borders, uh, Mid-Sense on Frontier, because they go wherever the need is greatest without regard for 
what the political affiliations are, as far as I know. That's the whole idea of without borders. They go where people need their services they can provide. And I just read in one of their posts that they're now using AI to do early detection and treatment of cervical cancer in very low-income parts of Africa and some of the countries in Africa. How great is that? So we can't say, I don't think, AI is good. AI is evil. Uh The answer to, is it good or evil, is yes. It's a tool. It's a tool. It's a tool, and how we use it is what matters. That's right. We can be given a hoe and use it to make a vegetable garden and feed ourselves. Or we could clobber someone that we really hate and are trying to destroy. What that raises for me is that it invites us to slow down, pause, and do some reflection or to have that mindfulness practice that you named of that other voice that's like, hmm, you know, what about? Because it can be at least in my lived experience, it can be really easy to be like gung-ho in one direction or the other, but not necessarily talking about sustainability, thinking further out. What are the implications of this? How might this disproportionately impact people? What, you know, asking some of those social justice questions and then implementing or not implementing or implementing in certain contexts with discernment and intentionality, whether it's AI or anything else. Yeah. So I love those words, discernment and intentionality mm-hmm. and mindfulness practice, or we don't have to use the word mindfulness, just saying, let's be thoughtful about this if people don't like the word mindfulness. So intention and discernment, and then to say, what are our next steps? Not in isolation, but what are our next steps? as people in relationship to one another. Oh, Moshim, it's always, or Moshim, it's always so good to see you and chat with you. I'm, I'm just sorry we live so far apart. I'd love to get together and take a walk in some wonderful, beautiful place with you. And maybe we can do that. Uh, maybe as we well. can, now that traveling is a little more possible than it was a few years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for the work you're doing. I, I find that the thought leadership that you represent, I know that you have practices such as yoga and what are called embodied or somatic practices these days. I feel that all of these skills and qualities that you demonstrate as a leader and your curiosity um, about the world are qualities that I want to emulate and become more like you. Oh, no way. No. Wow. That just like touched my way. That just touched my heart because I feel the same thing about you. In fact, I was like, I'm going to talk to Mushim today. I'm a little intimidated because I'm always so blown away by your wisdom and your presence and your humor. You have the most beautiful laugh and your community building and all of those things that you do so beautifully. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. And may the work go forward. Uh, Absolutely. May the work go forward. Take care.
Thank you for listening to Change Making Connections. I hope it has supported your social justice and leadership journey. This podcast was produced by the fantastic team at Alt Marketing Consulting. If you enjoyed listening to our show, please subscribe for future episodes and offer up a review wherever you catch your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for future episodes. Be well.